It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now here's Eric Lutie. All right, we're going to get started this morning. Uh, we, uh, for those of you that are uh, streaming live or via podcast, we just prayed, so sorry that... Uh, we're not going to include that. So you might want to stop the podcast and pray a little before you, you listen uh, on your own. But uh, we're ready to go here. Uh, we're uh, like ready and raring. So uh, fun message. This is going to continue my life lesson series. Uh, quite a few life lessons ago, I said I'll probably have a couple more. So I'm violating all of that. I even mapped out two more in addition to this. Uh, so. And I feel like if I truly uncork it, I could probably do this for 100 or 200 uh, life lessons. But, uh, so I probably need to come to an end one of these days. Uh, since we have a semester coming up, maybe that'll be my natural transition. But this one's called Sacred Waiting. And very specifically, I was reminded of this. This is something that, like I've said, most of these life lessons are under the radar, types of things in my life. Sometimes you don't know you're not thinking at a conscious level of what you do and why you do it. You just do it because you've been doing it for decades. And that's the way most of these are for me. It's like when you've been driving a car for a long time, you sort of forget about the fact that you're driving a car. You just drive the car. You don't get in and go, oh, I need to do this. Oh, I need to put my foot on the gas. Oh, I need to put my foot on the brake. You just do it. And that's the way Christianity is. The more familiar the terrain becomes, it just is normal to you. It's natural to you. It's like the story with the sheep and the goats where uh, Jesus is talking to the sheep and he says, uh, look, you did this for me, you did this for me, you did this for me. And they're like, when? <laughs> they're totally unconscious of their godliness. And I think there's, there's something about that in the Christian life and maturing which is profound. And a lot of us, when we're young in Christianity, we are so focused on doing things right that we oftentimes try in our own strength to do it. And as you mature, you begin to recognize it's in abiding. It's just abiding. I I think it's uh, Nathan that says it a lot. When you look at a tree uh, that bears fruit, uh, you don't see it straining to bear fruit. You just see it bearing fruit because the branch abides in the vine. And as a result, what does it do? It bears fruit. It doesn't try and bear fruit. It just does because it's doing the primary, which is abiding in Christ. So these are sort of those subconscious, under-the-radar types of things. The reason this one uh, came up to me is not just because I'm going through a season that matches it, which is the concept of waiting. I'm calling this sacred waiting as a a life principle, but uh, I'm I'm preparing various things for uh, an upcoming Purity Summit that we're going to be doing, and I'm also working on a father-son training project uh, that launches this fall. And so we had a father-son gathering, and I read them the very first few chapters of a book called Meet Mr. Smith. And I was so engrossed in this book. It was written about 12 years ago. So engrossed in this book that I ended up, you know, staying up later that night after they all left and reading it. And at the very end, it's talking about this concept of sacred waiting, which is weird because I was in reviewing it and reading this book that I wrote, I mean, I wrote the book. I felt like it was just so profound to me, and it was almost like a hidden gem or something that had been above the surface that had gotten sort of covered with some debris of time. 
and it was like, that is, that is so true, and that's always been a big part of my life, but in a sense, it's like I needed to see it afresh, which is, it's a weird thing reading your own book from 12 years ago, uh, and actually feeling like someone's talking to you, and you need to hear it, and you feel like you didn't know something, but then I have to say, no, I did know it, uh, so I, and it's a beautiful thing. This is actually a, a, a beautiful idea, a beautiful concept that is woven into the fabric of God's kingdom. So to understand sacred waiting, we sort of need to unpack even the idea of waiting. Now this isn't an in-depth teaching on waiting. You know, we could do a great sermon series just on the idea of waiting because it's a big deal in scripture. The idea of waiting is not something that any of us are inclined towards. None of us really appreciate, naturally, the idea of waiting. We prefer to have everything that we desire right now. So if God promises us something, we want it now. And for instance, heaven is a classic illustration of that. We want heaven. We really do. That's, that's, it's a desire of our life. We desire the absence of this battle that we are in down here. We want the pure perfection of uh, his presence just now. It's a good desire. However, there's something in between, and that is where the waiting comes in. There is a waiting that is baked into our lives at every level, and how we appropriate waiting and how we respond to waiting really decides whether we succeed in life or fail in life. Uh, in Pilgrim's Progress, there were two characters, Passion and Patience, and they both wanted toys. They had something that they desired, and they were promised it, and Passion could not wait. And so he wanted his toys instantaneously, and he just clamored, cried out, shouted, screamed, you know, did his whole fuss routine to get his toys. And Patience, well, his name uh, denotes exactly what he was. He was patient. So here's what's interesting in the story. Passion got what he wanted. He got his toys. And Patient, means, meanwhile, doesn't get his toys because he's waiting patiently. So Passion gets toys, but he gets a lesser quality toy. In fact, his toys, he, he gets his toys and he's like, ha, ha, you know, looking over at patients. You know, he has his, I always picture a truck, you know, with its wheels. And so he gets his toys and he starts playing with them and it's really fun. It's like sin has a pleasure for a season. But then it begins to just sort of fall to pieces. The wheels pop up but it, it just like disintegrates into dust and blows away. And then after a while, patients' toys come and they are the sort of toys that never wear out. They last for all time. So passion got what passion wanted, but passion lost it quickly. In other words, it has a spike of fascination and pleasure to it when you do things your way. When you, it, when you move away from waiting and patience and you do things in your timing, sure, you can get a little zest in life. There can be a little spike of pleasure, but it will fade and it will lead to everlasting uh, regret. And so there is something baked into the pattern of the kingdom which calls on patience. It is a virtue, as my mom used to always say, and it is a gift of the Holy Spirit. But we need to be able to endure the passage of time where we know that something is coming but we don't yet have it right now. And that process is one of the number one constructive elements of our life. So the principle of waiting. The active waiting of a farmer. I would say a farmer is probably the best illustration of waiting. And this is the one I have used in my mind. You know, when, you, when you're trying to understand a truth, you oftentimes create a metaphor. And that's what I do all the time. And so for me, the farmer illustration, of course, the, the kingdom of Israel 
uh, and Judah, were, they were agrarian cultures, so agriculture and farming was a big deal. And so as a result, there's a lot of things that Jesus gives that denote this. But in the idea of farming, if I were to say American farming, because I don't know a lot about um, Middle Eastern farming, but I do know, a lot, I have two granddads that were farmers, so I do at least, I'm dangerous on the, on the farming side here. To farm and to wait, are, they go together. In other words, you can't force that crop to grow faster than it needs to. You can't force uh, it to spring up out of the soil. You can't force it to bear fruit. But there is something you do, and that's why I call it active waiting. When a farmer is in the process of waiting, that doesn't mean he you know, goes on vacation. He actually is actively engaged. That crop needs to be watered. And if you're in uh, the Colorado Territory, that doesn't just happen from the sky. We need to irrigate. We have all sorts of active things that we need to participate in. And there's also things like weeds. There is a taking care of what you've been entrusted in that passage of time while the plants are maturing and while the fruit of the, the vine is, uh, is maturing. And so this this idea that I'm saying is active waiting, and that's what the Christian does. The Christian doesn't sit on his thumbs. The Christian engages in this waiting process, and while we're waiting for the promises of God to unfold in our life, well, guess what? There's things we're doing. We're actively engaged in pulling weeds and in watering what God has uh, invested in our life. So I, if you're listening via podcast, my slide on the screen says, my flight out of gate 43. I almost titled this message gate 43 as a symbol. It would have been cool, but I don't know that anyone would have remembered it uh, and what it meant. But uh, the subtitle of this one is United Airlines Promise. United Airlines, one of their hubs is, is Denver, and so uh, we have a lot of United uh, flights that come out of here, and it's always in concourse B. And so imagine uh, gate 43, uh, that Eric Ludy is going to take the risk and head all the way down to Denver International Airport. Why would I do that? Why would I drive all the way down? I mean, it's like an hour uh, drive uh, from Windsor. Why would I go all the way down to DIA uh, unless I knew that something was there that was gonna help me, right? This is the way it works in the kingdom of heaven. We don't just randomly go out and wait. You don't just go to a street corner and wait for a bus if you don't have an assurance that a bus is coming to that street corner. And you wouldn't show up at 2 in the morning if the bus is going to show up at 4 in the afternoon. In other words, you're going to time this. You're going to do it in accordance with what the promise is. And so the promise becomes very critical in how you do your waiting. You don't just randomly wait. You're waiting on purpose. And it's an active waiting. And so if I know, if I'm going to head to gate 43 in concourse B of Denver International Airport, I'm doing it on purpose. And I'm doing it for a reason. So I may wish to fly now, okay? Right now, I, could be, I really need to get to San Antonio, right now. Well, I need to go into active waiting mode, okay? There's something that is going to need to happen between right now and me getting on a plane to San Antonio. And then even when I get on the plane, there's a little waiting that still exists. In other words, things don't happen instantly in life, though at times we feel like and we super-spiritualize this idea that, well, God is God, why can't he just do it now? When in actuality, God is God, and he teaches patience. And so one of the things that God wants to cultivate in us is this depth of character that only comes out of the process of waiting. 
So I may wish to fly now, but I must wait. And I put quotes around wait, because when we think of wait, we just think of enduring the passage of time. However, I'm going to put it in the context of active waiting. For instance, if you are waiting from right this moment to your flight at gate 43 when you board the plane, well, you're still going to do something between now and then. In other words, if you just wait and you sit in this chair and sit on your thumbs and go, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, it's like, did you pack? Did you prepare the car and get it fueled up? Because you're going to need to drive all the way down there. Do you know how to get there? Do you have your GPS ready? There's things that you need to do in your waiting process. Now, that doesn't mean you're flying to San Antonio, but it does mean you're preparing. Just like a farmer prepares the soil, just like a farmer is going to pull a weed or water it, there is an activity in our passage of time. So I'm... Uh, I may wish to fly now, but I must wait for the right time to fly. I must do all that is necessary in the meantime to ready myself for the flight. I must pack. I must hop in the car. I must drive to the airport. I must park my car. I must go through security. Whew, this is a long list. I must walk to the terminal and must walk to the specified gate. Oh, all that? Why do I need to do all that? Why can't I just go to San Antonio? This is how many Christians stumble in their life because they don't recognize that waiting is a part and parcel of healthy Christianity. In fact, it's necessary. Many of us just look at it as a, something to, uh, to avoid at all costs instead of to embrace as a gift. If we got everything we wanted when we wanted it, we would be brats. But instead, God trains us in and through the process of promise unto faith, unto waiting, unto receiving. There is an obtaining of a promise that comes through a passage of time and an endurance of faith or a trial of faith. You know, as I'm driving down the road, I could be thinking, is DIA airport even there? I mean, if I get there, am I going to find it? And then when I get there, it's like, is there really a gate 43? And at my gate, is there really going to be a plane waiting? I could go through all that and I could be a doubting traveler all day long. However, in the kingdom of heaven, many people do the same thing. They have clear promise in Scripture, and God's saying, you do this, you do this, you do this, you'll watch what I will do. We have the promise. But then halfway there, we start to doubt that DIA Airport even exists. We wonder if United Airlines is a hoax. And we're, we're thinking, I don't even know if there is a Concourse B. And the whole while, because there's all these people out there whispering, yeah, I went to Concourse B one. But, boy, see if I can say that again. I went to Concourse B once. It wasn't there. You know, and then you have these things that filter through into Christianity, and people buy them all the time, and they begin to doubt something that God has made very clear, and so they abort the waiting process. So how can I go through all these steps without seeing the plane? Isn't that interesting? I've never even seen the plane. And yet, I will go through all of that because I'm confident that there will be a plane there. Isn't that funny that most of us have more confidence in United Airlines to supply a plane to take us to San Antonio than we do in God, the God of the universe who cannot lie, to supply everything that we need for life and godliness. So to wait, and I put quotes around wait there, because again, waiting is not just the passage of time. It is an active engagement in doing what is necessary in and through that passage of time. To wait in such a fashion, I must have confidence that when United Airlines declares that there will be a plane waiting at gate 43 in Concourse B to fly me to San Antonio, that they are telling me the truth. I am basing my waiting upon a credible promise from a credible source. 
We don't wait randomly. We wait on purpose. We wait on God, and that is the concept in Scripture. We wait on God, which means we trust Him. We trust what He has said. We trust that He can do it. He can do what? He can do it. You know what it is. It's the essence of Christianity. Everything that He says He will do, He can do it. So the promised RV, this is something that came to my mind when I was uh, putting this together. I remember, an, I, I'm going to guess that I was around 11, okay? It's just a guess. I, I don't know the exact age. I remember we were living in South Denver at the time, and parts of the story are still a little blurry to me, I, but here's my best guess. My parents were going out on a shopping trip, and it was to get a vehicle, I knew that, but they said, it, that, Eric, you're really going to like it. This is going to be very special. This is something we've always wanted as a family, but it's going to be a surprise. Okay? Now, can't you just imagine being a kid? And so my parents go out, and they leave on this escapade, this shopping trip, to get this vehicle that I know that, I'm going to really, that they said that I'm going to really like. Right? Now, it's my parents, so I trust them, right? and they leave, but I don't know how long it's going to be. This is a very difficult thing for an 11-year-old child to, in, to endure. So my parents are gone, and in my mind at first, I'm thinking it's probably going to be a couple hours, right? That's, that's reasonable. But four or five hours later, I am still at the window waiting. And so, and this is one, and this is why it stands out in my childhood. I did not want to leave the dining room window, which stared out at the front street, which we were in a cul-de-sac, and it looked down, and I could see the corner, the bend in the road where they would come down. And it was getting dark, and this is like summer, and I mean, so it was late, right? I think that was the first night I ever drank coffee. Uh, but I, I was standing there at the window, and I would not leave. So it's like, you know, I asked my sister if she could bring me in, you know, a coffee or whatever. And so this was like a big day. I mean, first night to drink coffee, waiting at the window. There's a lot going on here. And I still remember seeing that RV. It was an RV that they got. Come around the corner. It was dark, so it was just the lights. And as it got closer and as it came under the streetlights, I mean, yelling, screaming, Chrissy, Marky, it's coming. In other words, it was waiting. Everything that the biblical idea of waiting represents was right there. In other words, I am engaged in something. It's an active watching. It's not just, yeah, you know, it'll come, and I'm in the other room playing video games. It's an active engagement, an expectation, knowing that something is coming around that corner. I know it. Well, Eric, why don't you come in the other room and play video games? No, I don't want to miss it when it comes. I want to be a virgin with my oil full of, uh, my oil, my lamp full of oil. I want to do this right. And that's the way waiting works. So this, this screen says the promised RV, fogging up the windows all night long. So the word in Isaiah 40, that many of us are familiar with Isaiah 40. This is my favorite scripture growing up. Uh, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. So here's, it, you have the concept of waiting, and this is the idea of fogging up the windows, uh, waiting with expectation, longing. And so you know that there's something coming, and so you're waiting upon the Lord. And we actually have a promise baked into that statement, shall renew their strength. So when you're weak, what do you do? You look to the Lord. Lord, I know that you will renew this. I know that you will give me everything you need. Where, where do you go? You don't go to your vitamin cabinet. You go first to the living God. I'm feeling weak. I'm feeling drained. I, I need muscle in my spiritual life, Lord. Wait on me. 
you turn to the living God and you know you have a confidence, just as you would have a confidence in showing up at gate 43 that the United Airlines is going to supply the flight. Of course, some of you are thinking in your life, it's like, I've been to gate 43 and that plane never showed up. It was canceled. Yes, I know. That's why we trust God and not United Airlines. But the point is that even something like United Airlines can supply enough confidence to us that we would go through all that effort to get down to Denver International Airport. How much more so should we trust our God? They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Blessed are they, blessed are all they that wait for him. Wait upon me, says the Lord. These are great statements, guys. Lead me in thy truth and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. Now, this isn't just like sitting on your thumbs playing video games and saying, oh, I'm waiting on God. He'll, he'll deal with my life. Everything that needs to be done, he'll just deal with it. It's an active waiting. It's an engagement, just like a branch must abide in a vine. That is not just a passive thing. It's an active engagement of clinging, of holding on. This is the same idea. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. So God says, I'm going to strengthen your heart. And then he leaves. And we're like left in the dining room. And he's like, and so do we leave the dining room window? Do we say, he doesn't seem like he's coming back. It's been like five hours. It's getting dark out. No. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. He's coming, guys. He's coming. He will, in fact, perform. He will do as he promised. Your job is to wait. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt thee to inherit the land. Well, God, we haven't inherited the land yet. I thought you promised that we would inherit the land. Wait on the Lord and keep his way. You see, you have a job to do in the meantime. While you're waiting for that promise to be realized in this natural realm, you do your job. You wait. I, I love this. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. Wait on the Lord and he shall save you. These are good. These are good life uh, verses right there. So when I started this, I, I said the idea is sacred waiting. And then I taught you on waiting. It was a brief teaching. But if we combine the word sacred and waiting, what is that? And so this is something that's been a very dear, precious part of Leslie's in my life. And what it is based on is what we would call sacred things. There are certain things in life that are sacred. And as a result, there is a certain aspect where you apply waiting to those sacred things before you enjoy them. There, there are certain things that are not meant to be handled lightly or loosely, but they are meant to be cherished. And oftentimes when you wait for something, you'll notice that in that process of waiting, it amplifies your anticipation. It amplifies enjoyment. It's the, you know, I don't drink wine, but it's the principle of wine, right? The longer it ferments and it waits, the better it is, supposedly. Again, I don't drink it, so I'm, I'm taking borrowed information there. But that's the concept, that the longer the waiting goes, the greater the amplification of anticipation and enjoyment when something does come. Now, most of us don't really like that uh, principle of life. It's like, come on, why does that have to be in life? And yet, God put it there. 
And what God desires is to bring out full pleasure and full enjoyment in life. And so what does he teach us? How to wait. Isn't that a weird thought? That God actually bakes this in on purpose to increase the glory of God in and through our life, to increase even our satisfaction in life. He says, will you do it my way? But God, I'm in a hurry. God, I want this now. I crave this. You know what lust is in a most basic sense is the unwillingness to wait. I want it now. I want to serve myself now. I don't want to put off anything. I crave, I take. And you are destroying yourself. You see, when you do things your way, when you do things in accordance with impulse, with desire, and you're not willing to wait for the right time for it, it actually aborts the beauty. It miscarries the very life that God was wanting to cultivate. So sacred things. Let me give you some examples, okay? Now, one of the best ways to understand sacred things is in the realm of romance, okay? I know that might be a little awkward for a daily thunder in the morning to talk about romance, but it, it is. And since Leslie and I have spent years of our life dealing with this topic, it's very close to the surface. And since I was reading Meet Mr. Smith, which if you knew what book that was, you'd understand uh, what the theme was. This is, this is a key thing. So in romance, a sacred handhold. These are things like to hold the hand of a member of the opposite sex in a meaningful way is heaven. It's hard, hard to describe, but it's very, very special. You don't just do that. You don't just, if I just walked out of here and found a girl and held her hand, it would be extremely awkward uh, for everyone involved, okay? You guys, the girl, me, everything about it. It's just like, okay, that's not right because it's something sacred. You see, I could say hi to someone and smile, and those are things, like, it's interesting. There, if I come up and shake someone's hand, there's no, nothing, viol, nothing violated in that. If I come up and just kiss someone, it's, it's something's not right, okay? I'm taking something that is sacred, and I am misusing it. It is meant to be handled differently. And so that's the second one on the list, a sacred kiss. You see, there are things in our lives that are not meant to be spent unwisely, but are meant to be savored and kept for right timing. A sacred touch. Oh, by the way, this would be a fun story to share anyways. Uh, the first time I ever held a girl's hand, I would not recommend any of you to go the path of young Eric Ludi, uh, but the very first time I ever held a girl's hand, I was in a movie theater. I wasn't thinking about the movie at all. I was sitting next to this uh, girl, and I had my keys. I, I, I don't know if, if they were keys to the house. I don't even know that I could drive yet, but I had keys in my hand. And I remember her hand was right near mine, and I'd never held a girl's hand before. And so I reached over, and I had my keys in my hand. That's an important part of the story. And I, I sort of grabbed hers, and she, like, grabbed it back, right? So I was actually holding a girl's hand. It was one of the most extraordinary things I'd ever gone through, right? And uh, so I wasn't thinking about the movie at all. All I'm thinking about is this hand that I'm holding, and the keys were poking into some nerve in my hand, and my arm was going numb. But I refused to let go of the hand because this is the first time I'd ever held a girl's hand. I didn't want to mess things up. But as is, this is progressing, it's like some kind of numbness is like transferring through my whole body. I mean, it's just terrible. It's this horrible thing that was ta- taking place. But, and I couldn't even feel the hand anymore. It's just like dead uh, over here. So there's probably something, some spiritual truth woven into that. A sacred word. There are words spoken that, are, that shouldn't be spoken hastily. As my mom uh, once said, Eric, 
Never tell a girl you love her unless you plan on asking her to marry you in the next breath. In other words, those are sacred words. When you say that you love someone like that in a romantic sense, you are actually taking a step forward into sacred, holy territory, and you should not do it lightly unless you plan on backing it up with life commitment. A sacred question, like, will you marry me? Okay, I mean, these are like, you don't just go out and do that everywhere. This is a big deal. It is sacred. So therefore, you wait for the right time. You don't ask that prematurely. How awkward is that? A sacred vow, like, I do. You don't say, I do, just every day. You wait for the right time. See, these are just some illustrations of sacred things, okay? I'm just trying to bring sacred things to the surface. So in Ecclesiastes 3.1, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. When you look at your life, there are certain desires you may have. There are certain things that God has planted within you. And so say you're 10. We have two 10-year-olds in here. And you may say, I want to get married someday. Yeah, someday is the key operative word. In other words, it would be inappropriate for you to go out, uh, Kipling, and propose to a girl today, right? You need to learn to wait. And that waiting process is going to grow Kipling up to be ready for that day. And it will cause him to appreciate it all the more because he did it right. When you do things in God's time, in God's way, according to God's plan, it increases value, it increases strength, it increases beauty in the process. So in family, uh, in family, there are going to be different dimensions of sacredness that you're going to go through. For instance, you're going to introduce your kids to different truths. And some, like, for instance, when you share your, with your child about Jesus, okay, there's, there's, there's just talking about Jesus in the home, and then there's a sit-down time when you know they're ready and you invite their soul into something. It's very sacred. It's a very precious thing. You don't take it lightly. When that moment comes, you drop everything and you focus. A sacred training. There are training processes that we work through, our, work through with our kids that are very, very significant that you don't do prematurely. You have to wait for their readiness and their requisite maturity to understand it. A sacred word. There are sometimes those words where you just sense, I need to speak this to my child. And it's important that you don't do that haphazardly, like when you're walking out the door one day and you yell it back over your shoulder. When there's something that needs to be said and you sense it as a parent, for instance, you make sure that you pick the right time and you make sure they hear it and understand it. A sacred question, a sacred handoff, a sacred send-off. There are points in time where you're going to hand over authority to your children, and you're going to say, okay, you're in charge of this now. You're in charge of the lawn. Now, that's a big deal for Daddy Ludi. It's like the lawn, you know, I care about my lawn, right? So it's like suddenly, you're in charge of the lawn. Whoa, that's a handoff. How about a send-off? Sending them off to college, sending them off to the mission field, sending them off in marriage. Oh, like this one. Oh, no, it's not. Uh, I think the send-off must have been what I was thinking for marriage. So in growing up, same, same types of things, a sacred trust where at a certain point in time, you are given either information, you're given a job responsibility, but that comes at a certain point in time because you're proving yourself faithful. But have you ever seen those little, those children like, Daddy, I want to do this. I can do this. And the father's like, you're not ready for that yet. Well, you have to wait. There's a, there's a process in that, a sacred piece of knowledge, 
like knowing what your dad makes uh, a year, you know, in his income. That's, that's sacred. I mean, you don't just talk about that anywhere. That's like information that, you, you know, you, you, it's sacred information, a sacred responsibility. There can, all sorts of things can happen growing up where you get entrusted with a job, and it's serious. And it's because you have proven faithful that you get this job, but you get it at the right time. You may want it earlier, but you get it when you're ready for it. A sacred training, a sacred handoff, a sacred send-off. This is from the child perspective. This is how you have to wait for that. A sacred transition from being in this home to starting your own home. These are things that are sacred uh, things in a child's life growing up. In the church, it's interesting because, you know, as you progress, any, I can talk about any zone of life and there are sacred things. But God is the one that invented all these. He invented marriage and romance. He invented the family. He invented the growing up and maturing process. He invented church all as a revelation of his kingdom. And they all involve these sacred things that God himself says, hey, the way you handle that is very, very important. And so think about communion, which is a sacred meal. When the church at Corinth was mishandling this sacred thing, there were some that were sick and dying among them. I mean, isn't that an amazing statement that when you mishandle sacred things, it actually deteriorates and aborts the life? A sacred commission. Do not lay hands on any man quickly. And so what do you do? There's a waiting process to establish credibility and trustworthiness of those that will lead the church. A sacred send-off. To send off a missionary? Well, they're not just ready instantaneously there's a readying of a missionary when a church lays hands on them and sends them off a sacred confrontation maybe on more of the negative side here but uh it's still important it's still a good thing in the church to do but sometimes there's something that needs to be addressed and it needs to be addressed just right there's a way in which you address something and and you need to make sure that you handle it as a sacred thing and a sacred blessing there are all sorts of different times where you will bless something but that is something that you want to always stand out. Just like uh, baptism is, is a sacred thing. It really is. And for my kids, just because they pray a prayer does not mean I say, oh, let's, let's, I want you to get baptized. When they're young, I want them to be able to understand fully what it means to be baptized. I want them to know their position in Christ. I want them to understand that when... They believe in Christ, they're now sharing in Christ's death. They're sharing in his burial, they're sharing in his resurrection. And they're sharing in his seated position in the heavenly realms. I want them to understand baptism. So when they understand that, then that sacred thing unfolds and it becomes a sacred process. As opposed to just rushing it because I want to dot an I or cross a T or check a box. It's like, oh, I just want to get you baptized. No, I want you to be baptized the right way. I want you to know by faith that you are in Christ and what he did for you is yours. So patiently awaiting the sacred moment. For all these different things, there are sacred moments. For all sorts of different things. Now, romance is oftentimes the easiest to understand. We can all relate to it at a certain level. It's like if we were to say the kiss, your first kiss. It's like, well, you could rush that and you could have your first kiss at the age of eight. It's pretty easy to do. Uh, and you could manufacture it, just go run up to someone and kiss them, right? There's all sorts of things you could do. You could be hasty, or you could say, God, I want to do this your way. I want to give the sacred things to you, and I want you to unfold the timetable. The words I love you 
uh, for Leslie and I, as I already told you, my mom's famous quote of saying, Eric, don't tell a girl you love her unless you plan on asking her to marry you in the next breath. I took that very seriously. So I didn't share the words, I love you. Uh, and then even when Leslie and I were getting to know each other, and we even knew that we were going to be married. This is what was, we could call it humorous and funny, but Eric was just trying his best to walk through this. But I didn't want to say the words, Leslie, I love you, until I was ready to ask the question. So this is, now I'm not even prescribing this and saying this is the way you should do it. I'm just saying this is what I did. And you know what happened to those words, I love you, in the process? It amplified them. It like increased the font size. Because when I did say them, Leslie knew that I had saved them for her. Isn't that an interesting thought? I don't think, even at that point in time, it, it wasn't like that was the strategy. It's just that what we saw is that when you wait for something, like our first kiss was on our wedding day, and again, that's not a prescription. It's just saying that's what we did, and what did it do? It amplified the value of a kiss. And so there's something precious about waiting that and amplifies anticipation, amplifies beauty, and amplifies the entire pleasure dimension of something. And it doesn't empty of its pleasure. When you wait for something, for God's timing, it doesn't fall into pieces. The wheels don't pop off of it. It actually maintains its value. So I did actually save those words, and it was a poem that I had written for Leslie, and the very last lines, right before I said, will you marry me, was, uh, I love you, and then, will you marry me? It was, uh, it was a little more poetic than that, but that was the concept, and it was beautiful. That's all I can say. It was extraordinary, and those words uh, were, and still are, extremely valuable to us. The choreography of the Holy Spirit. Choreography is, I like the word. It's, it's sort of a neat word. Uh, and so I always think of like dance uh, choreography, but life has a choreography to it. And if you're developing dance choreography, what you're doing is you're defining movements and timing. And so when do you do the spin? When do you stick the hand up in the air? When do you do these things is choreographed and it matches with a rhythm, with, with music. And most of us, I don't think of the Holy Spirit as a choreographer. Because we usually take that position. We are the choreographers of our life. We anticipate the way we want something to be, and then we try and make it happen that way. And that's where we bungle things up. So when I'm saying, here's a life lesson, guys, this is it. It's the Holy Spirit needs to choreograph everything. He choreographed my love story with Leslie, which still to this day is one of the most mystifying, beautiful things that I've ever walked through. But I also have all these other moments throughout life, seasons that Les and I have walked through that we still look back on and we repeat them. We're like, wow, look at what God did. The formation of this ministry, this campus, and how God brought it all together, exquisite, extraordinary, breathtaking. This is who our God is. But the key is, you have to let him do it. So our, our book that we're most known for, When God Writes Your Love Story, give him the pen. Let him script it. Let him write it. And so I'm in a season right now where that's an important thing, that there's certain things like, okay, God, do I push this forward? 
do I choreograph this? Am I the, and of course you know the answer. What, what, what do you think the answer is going to be? Should Eric now take back the pen after 25 years of doing this? Should I take back the pen and figure out how to do this? Or should I freshly give it to him and say, God, I trust you. I'm headed to gate 43. I know you're going to be there. I know everything that is required for my life, for life and godliness, is going to be supplied. And I will get to San Antonio. I'm actually not headed to San Antonio, but since that's the illustration, I will get to the exact place I know you are calling me. I will get there. How? Well, I have something to do in the meantime. I'm not going to be twiddling my thumbs and playing video games in the other room. I need to be engaged in active waiting. But... I want the Holy Spirit to lead, and I trust him. I trust that he is going to do the part that I can't do. He is going to produce this drama. He is going to write the script. Here's a few facts, guys. I could know that God desires to do something in my life. You ever had that? It's like, yeah, God wants to do this in my life. Now, what do we oftentimes do? We try and do it then. It's like, I know that God wants to do it. You even feel like he's given you a promise. So then you oftentimes take it into your own hands and try and do it. It's the classic Ishmael. It's like, what does God want to do in Abraham's life? Give him a son in his old age. Huh, okay. Thank you, God, for the cue. I know how to make children. And so what does he do? He creates a mess, uh, as Ishmael is called, a wild donkey of a man. Yeah, we've all probably created wild donkeys of situations because we jumped ahead of the sacred waiting process. Instead of saying, God, this is yours. And you need to do this supernaturally. See, we don't like that supernatural dimension. We'd like it all to be natural, where we can do it, it leans on us, it's up to us. Instead, sacred waiting demands a trust of a supernatural process. So I could know that God desires to do something in my life, but often I must wait for the sacred timing for this something to arrive. The passage of time between the promise and the fulfillment is where the sacred waiting unfolds. When we wait, we discover that God is a masterful choreographer. So life lesson for Eric. First of all, I need to trust God to choreograph. I need to trust that at gate 43, the plane is going to be there. I need to show up. I need to wait, and even if I get there and it appears that the plane isn't there yet, you ever had that moment too? It's like you go all the way from Windsor, Colorado to DIA to, you know, through security. It's a big process, right? In fact, you get stopped at security, and then they call you back, and they take you into a back room and interrogate you. You finally get to the gate, and it says delayed. What? Still can't see the plane. How are you doing? Do you trust that that plane is coming? God will come through. The, the story I keep repeating to myself is the Daniel one. When he was praying... And there was some kind of war in the heavenlies, you know, some kind of fight uh, to get this messenger through to Daniel. And we don't have a lot of insight into what happens in the spiritual realm, but we do have that story. And there seems to be a fight. A messenger is trying to get to Daniel with that answer. It's like the plane is trying to get to the airport. And there's hindrance. There's a blockage. And Daniel continues to pray. He's waiting on the Lord. And then Michael the archangel comes in and busts it all loose and the messenger comes. Of course, many of us think, why couldn't Michael have just come in day one? <laughs> why, why did we have to wait 21 days? Those 21 days are a blessing. That's what's building us. Don't ever forsake the beauty, the power, and the working of that waiting process. God is a masterful choreographer. 
He always supplies the perfect ending. Okay, that's a life lesson I have. And in those moments where it seems like I'm at a chapter where it looks like all is going dark, have you ever had, just think about a movie out there, right? What makes a good movie? A dark turn, a bad event. I mean, this is all part of the grand story. If you don't have conflict, you don't have resolution, and resolution is what makes the grand gospel something special. And so as a result, when you get those dark turns, those chapters that look like, oh, no, what's going to happen now? You always smile. When you're in a movie, you know it's going to turn out good. At least you should. There's a few movies that have tried to test that theory and have bad endings, but those are just bad movies. We all know that. In other words, a a good movie has a good ending. Come on. What kind of junk is out there that would have a bad ending for a movie? You see, the storyline of the kingdom of heaven ends well. And all the individual seasons of our life, if we will trust them to God, have a happy ending. If you want to say it that way. It doesn't mean it's easy. It's an easy ending. Like even if there's a passing away of someone, there's some difficulty that's going on, it does not mean that that's the last chapter. There is always a turn. There is a redemption. There is beauty that comes forth out of ash. And so for all of us to recognize that even when we go through those dark chapters, even when we go through, we get held up at security and we get taken into the back room for interrogation, that God is still God and he is faithful and he is a master choreographer and he turns all that the enemy means for evil into good. And according to his purpose, he will take all things for us as Christians and convert them into something that will reveal his glory. That is how he works. Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. That's what we're talking about right there. See, this is a captive nation, and yet that's not the end of the story. You see, there is more, and God will redeem. God will return those captives unto their homeland. God will bring about an ending that showcases his redemptive power. I, this, this is the scripture we had come up at the very end of a video about recent Lily's homecoming. And in that four-year process, was it three-year? I think it was three years. In that three-year process with that adoption, Leslie and I, though we have experienced very difficult moments and sharp pains in our life, we would probably say that's in the top three, if not the top, three most difficult things we've ever walked through. There were moments in there, and I would say probably five to ten of them where it was impossible for Reese and Lily to get out of Haiti. And it was, I mean, there was some dark, there was a lot of dark stuff going on. It was really hard. We had some dark chapters in there. And we have these young kids that are praying every day for this, and we want to see their faith matched. And so it's a really interesting, tenuous situation we were walking through. And yet, what could I say? God's a masterful choreographer. He did it. Even that homecoming video, if you guys haven't seen it, you should see that homecoming video of Reese and Lily. Uh, I mean, it is 
for, for us, maybe, maybe everyone else can watch it and be a stoic, but for me, it's just a heart melter. It is so profound, because I know the story behind it. I know how impossible it seemed to be, but how many times did Les and I have to entrust it and say, God, this is your business. You started it, you finish it. You were in the job description of bringing solitary and sticking them into families. We are ready, we're in active waiting mode. We're weeding, we're watering, but you're gonna have to do this. And he did. And he has always done that. And though I can personally attest to the fact that there have been difficult, difficult, harrowing moments in my life in following this God and coming to gate 43 over and over and over again for many flights in my life, God's plane has always been there. He is faithful. He is true. Sacred waiting leads to extraordinary living. So, life lesson. Father, I pray that we would freshly cherish the waiting processes that we are all currently in. We could probably all list out quite a few different things that we're in the process of, that things that have not yet been fully realized in our life. But Lord, we say thank you for that. And I pray that we would be able to fully gain from this waiting process what you desire us to gain. That like that grapefruit, we would squeeze out every bit of juice out of it. We would not leave any in the rind. Lord Jesus, we love you and we submit to you with grand expectations. For you are good and faithful and true. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.